and we are in Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to cover Matthew 8, 18 through chapter 9, verse 8. Matthew 8, 18. And today we continue in a section of Matthew that focuses on Jesus' miracles. And last week we looked at the first three of nine miracles that Jesus performed. He healed the leper. He healed the centurion's servant, the Gentile centurion's servant. And he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Each one of these people was a person on the margins. A leper, unclean, couldn't uh, integrate with people. Uh, you had the centurion who was a Gentile representative of Rome. Jews thought the Gentiles were uh, unclean. And you have a woman with a fever which made her unclean. And she's also a second class citizen of the woman. Now today we come to three more of Jesus' miracles. But before he performs these miracles, he has two encounters. Unexpected encounters. So I'm going to show you these two encounters. Encounter number one that starts in verse 18 and goes to verse 20. And here's what it says. When Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Now this is the context of where this encounter takes place. If you look back just two verses, Jesus has spent all day, all the way into evening, uh, ministering to people, and he's literally exhausted. And he sees now more people just pressing in on him, and he says, we need to launch out, and we need to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which would be the eastern side. Now that's going to be eight miles across, okay? So we're not dealing with uh, motorboats, but we're going to deal with, you know, a little, a casual ride across the lake, and it's going to take a few hours. And so that's the context in which the encounter takes place. So now we look at Verse 19, then a certain scribe came. Now, Jesus has not departed yet. This is before his departure. A certain scribe, it would be a, a Jewish teacher who interprets the law, came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, look first of all at the evaluation that this man has of Jesus. He calls him a teacher. Now, that's an accurate evaluation but it's not an adequate evaluation. Because Jesus presents himself as more than a teacher, he presents himself as God's spokesperson. So uh, this guy at least recognizes Jesus as a teacher with some sort of authority, and the scribe himself is a teacher. So he sees Jesus as a superior. And Jesus is an itinerant evangelist, in a sense. He's traveling from city to city, and this guy says, I am willing to forsake everything and follow you which would have been quite a statement for a scribe who is part of the elite. Only 8% of the whole population is an elite population. Everybody else are peasants. No middle class in Jesus' day. It wasn't like America. Okay? Just think of the worst nation in the world as far as economics is concerned. Maybe a place like Haiti, and you've got either the wealthy or you have the, the poorest of the poor and that's how it was in Jesus' day. This man is a leader and he says, I'm willing to give it all up to follow you. Uh, so I would call this man an enthusiast, wouldn't you? He's very enthusiastic about following Jesus. 
He says, wherever you will go, you know, I will follow. So what does he mean when he says, wherever you will go, I will follow? Don't spiritualize this. We always want to spiritualize it, don't we? Where is Jesus going to go? The other side of the lake. And, and then beyond. He's going to travel. He's going to preach. And this guy says, I'm willing to leave it all, and I'm going to follow you. Well, I've heard that before. I remember when I planted a church. People said, oh, you're planting a church? We're going with you. And I said, oh, that's good. And then, of course, when you plant the church, what happens? Well, they, they're there for a while, and then they abandon. I had one guy said, well, I can't come to Sunday evening services because I live too far. I said, well, when you signed up, you said, whatever. And he said, well, you know, so they drop out. So look how Jesus responds in verse 20. He said, well, let me tell you something. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air has ne have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, do you really know what you're committing to? Have you counted the cost? Uh, because to come with me means you're going to give up your home. It means you're going to be no longer part of the elite. You're going to live in austerity. You're going to live in probably poverty. And the illustration he uses is the illustration of birds and foxes. Because birds at night go back to their nests. And foxes go back to their holes. They have a place where they sleep every night. Jesus says, when you follow me, you're not going to have a place to sleep every night. You don't go back home at 5 o'clock in the evening and watch television, eat supper, and things like that. You just will sleep wherever you can find a place to sleep. So Jesus is asking this guy to count the cost. Each step of the journey is going to be a step into the unknown. Now, I laugh at people that have this view that Jesus was a rich man. I've read commentaries. He had a royal colored you know, cloak. It shows you he was, Jesus was as poor as a church mouse. Okay? He was a carpenter. Don't think of carpenters today who are in carpenters' union. <laughs> uh, think of somebody who, you know, breaks brick and, and, and works hard and is a peasant. Uh, Jesus was not a North Dallas Christian. But I want to tell you something else. He wasn't a South Dallas Christian either. Because both of those have homes that they go back to at night. Jesus had no place to lay his head. And so he's asking this guy to count the cost. He was born in a borrowed tomb, a borrowed stable, and he was laid to rest in a, in a borrowed tomb. So to follow Jesus means that you're going to have to trust God for every step of the way. Now look how he addresses, uh, look how Jesus addresses himself in verse 20. He calls himself the Son of Man. This is the first time Jesus uses that phrase in Matthew's Gospel. And it can be a reference back to Daniel 7, where in a vision Daniel sees one like the Son of Man uh, who receives a kingdom. And it can refer to that, this phrase Son of Man is used 29 times in Matthew's Gospel. It can be a substitute just for the pronoun I. And half the time it refers to the Messiah, and other times it refers to I. And this time I think it's just a substitution for the word I. So read it that way. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. 
but I have nowhere to lay my head, basically, is what he's saying. So probably in that particular reference. So that's the enthusiast. Now we're going to look at an unenthusiast, okay, an encounter with an unenthusiast. Look at verse 21. I don't know if that's good English or not, but look at that. Then another of his disciples, that doesn't mean like Peter and John and James, it just means somebody who's been on the hillside and has you know, listened to him and say, hey, that sounds pretty interesting, said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now what is this guy asking Jesus to do? What does he want to do before he follows Jesus? He wants to bury his father. Now, this can mean a couple things. I want to give you two, two theories on this. It could be his father just died, or is about to die, and he needs to take care of the funeral. That seems to be a reasonable response. Jerry Hawkins' mother just died. He's going to bury his mother. That seems to be reasonable. Or the man could be talking about a second burial. It was the Jewish custom that a year after a parent a person died, you went to the tomb, and by that time all the flesh and everything was off of their bones, and you would collect the bare bones, and you would put those bones in a bone box, an ossuary, and then that box would be put up on the shelf in the tomb area. So it could be that Sometime in the past, his father died. It was going to be, he had to take care of This was the responsibility of the oldest son. This, was, this is what it meant to honor your parents. That was one thing. He took care of a burial. And he wants to do that. And that, So that seems uh, to be reasonable. And so what he's asking for is a delay. I want to follow you. I want to become a permanent disciple. But, you know, I need to wait a little bit. Now, I want to show you something that amazed me when I saw this this past week. I want you to mark your Bibles here, and I want you to go back to Genesis 50. The last chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. Now, this is the story of Jacob's death. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And uh, the Jews are in Egypt. And Joseph, of course, who was assistant to the Pharaoh, discovers that his father dies, and he's brokenhearted in verse 1. Genesis 50, verse 1. He fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. And many of you have been in a situation where you, similar things happened to you, where you saw a parent die in front of you. And then Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. So Jacob's name was changed. Forty days were required for him. For such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of the Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of the Pharaoh and say, my father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Therefore, please let me go and bury my father, and I will come back. 
And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he's made you swear. And so Joseph went up to bury his father. Jesus is less sympathetic than Pharaoh. Joseph said, I need to get back to work, but I have to bury my father. Pharaoh said, sure, go on and bury your father. Who wouldn't say that? Jesus wouldn't say it. Jesus gives a very, what seems like a very harsh response. He says, no, you don't go to bury your father. So what's Jesus doing here? Why is he so harsh? He's saying, basically, that the kingdom of God takes precedence over the kingdom of this world. And you have to decide where your priorities are and where your loyalties are. In fact, Jesus said, abandon your parents even while they're living, didn't he? You're not willing to abandon your parents. You can't follow me. He said, you, you should just count your own self dead in fact. If you want to follow me, because when you follow me, you don't have any more rights. You give a lot up. So he's asking them to count the cost up front. <clears throat> he doesn't want them to start following him and then abandon him later. He's trying to thin out the ranks now so that later when they drop by the wayside, it doesn't affect the ministry. They're better off thinning out the ranks beforehand. And so that's what he's doing. And there's no indication that either of these guys, the enthusiast or the unenthusiast, ever follow Jesus. Their story just drops off. It looks like the guy said, well, I have to bury my father. And I, I guess I could say, and I don't blame him. I think this is too hard. Why should I do this? Now, I want you to realize, well, this is very important that you realize this, because can always twist the scripture. These are people who are saying, I'm giving up everything and I'm following you across the lake and I'm going to start going into ministry with you. This is a full-time ministry these guys are talking about. It's not that they're going to stay here and be, quote, spiritual disciples of Jesus. That means they are going to get on the field and they're working. They're going into full-time ministry with him by faith. That's what they want to do. And let me tell you, if I were teaching this to a group of students who say, I feel God's called me in the ministry, that's what I would preach right there. You better think about it twice. Because it's going to cost you a lot, or it can cost you a lot. So, what we have here are these two encounters. Now, let's look at the miracles. You ready? First, we have a transition verse in Matthew 8, 23. And by the way, let me say, what would you do in this situation like that? feel God's calling you into the ministry? Maybe you're even retired. You know, I think I'm going to give the rest of my life to missions. I'm just going to go on the mission trip. You better think about that. So, uh, and think about this for those who are young, who say, I feel dad, I feel mom, I feel granddad, maybe God's calling me into the ministry. You owe it to them. Not to dissuade them, but to ask them to think about it and really count the cost. So here we have this transition verse in verse 23. Now when he got into the boat, his disciples, and this would be his real disciples, those who have counted the cost, uh, followed him. So now, miracle number one, Jesus' authority over nature. Jesus' authority over nature. Verses 23 through 27. Okay, look at verse 24. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. And so what happens is they get in there, they get in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, 
and a great storm rises up. Now, the Sea of Galilee is 680 feet below sea level. Hard to believe. And there are great big hills up on the eastern side of the sea. And it sort of makes the Sea of Galilee a wind tunnel. When the winds come over the mountains and fall down onto the sea, and it can stir up a storm like you've never seen before. Not like the storm that you would see on a Texas lake. It's the kind of storm that is, you know, the storm from hell type of storm. You know what I mean. And the word there, tempest, in the New King James, and storm in other translations, it says in a great storm or tempest rose up, is the Greek word uh, seisma, from which we get our word earthquake. Seismatic. They, they test the size of Earth. This was an earth-shaking, or we should say a sea-shaking event that was sort of like a swirling tornado over the lake. I mean, it was horrendous. And so this great storm rises up over the sea, bigger than usual. Some of these guys were fishermen, so they were used to storms. But this even scared them. It says the boat was covered, which means the waves are filling in the boat and it's ready to go down. But the end of verse 24 is very interesting. It says, but he, that's Jesus, was sleeping. And that's a perfect tense verb. I mean, he just continued to sleep on, just like nothing was happening. He's sleeping through the storm. And some of you can sleep through storms. I, I'm not one that can sleep through a storm. But uh, I can I can hear the I can hear the thunder when it's 50 miles away, and I'm I'm awake and I said, was that thunder? And then it comes on, you know. And I've been awake for 45 minutes. And I hear it getting closer and closer and closer. By the way, he's sleeping in this. This is where he's laying his head tonight. That's where he's going to lay his head tonight. On the edge of the boat. This has to be a boat that you know, probably holds 20 or 30 people. So this is a sizable boat, and he's sleeping through the storm. So look what happens. Verse 25 says, Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us! We're drowning! We're going under! We're perishing. I find this humorous. I mean, if the storm doesn't wake him up, how do you think you're going to wake him up? What do you do? I mean, he's been shaken by this storm, and you're afraid that we're going under. How do you wake a guy up that's sleeping so soundly? And by the way, even if they do wake him up, what are they expecting him to do? What do they think he could do? Do they think he's going to stop the storm? That's ridiculous. They probably want him to help them bail the water out. <laughs> or something like that. They say save him, but uh, save them, but they're not expecting him to stop any storm. I don't know what they're expecting. It's actually a really a funny <clears throat> scene right there. Verse 26 it says, But he said to them, this is a great one, Why are you fearful? Duh. Why are we fearful? <clears throat> He chides them. Why are you fearful? What's the next phrase there? 
Oh, you of little faith? What do you have to be afraid of? All you have to do is have faith. Now, faith has to have an object, doesn't it? If you're trusting something, you have to trust something. <laughs> so, their faith should have an object, and that is God. And what should they be doing when the storm rages? Trusting God. Resting in, just like he's resting his head on the boat when the storm's raging. He's not concerned about the storm raging, is he? Either should they be. They should be trusting God to see them through the storm. They want the storm to be stopped. They want something. But he said, no, you should just trust God. You little faith. Now, what makes that so interesting is that earlier he talked about somebody who had great faith. The centurion. <laughs> the Gentile centurion. Who came and wanted his servant healed and said, just say a word. Jesus, I've never seen so great faith like this in my life. Well, if that guy had great faith, these guys have little faith. They can't even trust God to get them through the storm. And then look what it says in verse 26. Then he arose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Everything just stopped. By the way, the word rebuked is the word he uses with demons a lot of times. So uh, Matthew may be giving us a little hint that this was not just any ordinary storm. It may indeed have been a storm from hell. It may have been somehow demonically originated. And when he rebukes the storm and the sea, everything just gets calm. And you think they were afraid before. Think how afraid they are now. And what makes it so interesting, this is the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberius is Caesar. Tiberius is Caesar. This is his sea. Tiberius can't even, he's called the master of the sea. Tiberius was King Caesar, was the, was the master of the sea. He was the master of the land, and he was the master of the, this is his sea. And the sea rages out of control. He can't even control it. But guess what? The real master of the sea just says, peace, be still. And he does what Caesar can't do. He's the master of the sea. So, and he's the master over Satan, who may have caused this thing. Now, I'm going to show you why we know that the disciples weren't expecting this. Look what it says in verse 27. So the men marveled, saying, Who can do this? They, they weren't expecting this. That even the winds and the sea obey him. Who can do this? That even the winds and the sea obey this. One translation says, who is this man uh, that could do such a thing? This is beyond human uh, capability. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus speaks on behalf of God. He has the authority to God of God to speak. And when God speaks, things happen. And Jesus is God's earthly representative. He speaks on behalf of God and he has authority over nature. So now, the aftermath of all of this, we see in verse 28, which is going to lead to miracle number two. That when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, and some translations say the Gadarenes. 
there's a dispute over whether the city was garrison or whether the city was garrison. We're not sure on that. Some translations say one, some say the other. There met him, now he's got out of the boat, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly violent or fierce, so that no one could pass that way. So now, notice, if the sea was demonic, now he meets people who are demonic, and they are violent and out of control, just like the sea was out of control. So fierce and violent that they control the highway so that no one could pass. You'd have to take a detour because this two-man gang threatened your life. It'd be just like you walking through a neighborhood and you saw a gang coming down the street. You're going to make a detour and go around. You're not going to deal with these guys. So what we have here is we have these two demon-possessed men. By the way, notice where they were from. They're from the tombs. They have a place to lay their head at night. Even the demon-possessed have a place to lay their head every night. Every night they went back to the tombs and went to sleep. Jesus doesn't have a place to lay his head every night. Listen, that he knows of. It's going to be whatever, whatever comes up. So what we have are these two men controlled by demons. And suddenly they cried out in verse 29. They asked a question. What have we to do with you, Jesus? You, Son of God. Now notice they identify Jesus as the Son of God. Not Son of Man, Son of God. A phrase that was used when Jesus was baptized and God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is a messianic title. The demons realize who Jesus really is. The disciples say, Who is this guy? Is that what they said when Jesus performed the miracle? Who is this guy? Hey, the demons know exactly who he is. He said, Son of man, Son of God, you know, Messiah. So they, what are you doing here? And then they asked another question in verse 29. They say, Did you come here to torment us before the time? They know that one day they're going to stand before the Messiah to be judged. But they think, hey, this is a little too soon. We weren't expecting that until the end of the age. I want you to know something. The end of age, the, end of the age has already come in Jesus. And there's a sense in which the kingdom is arriving and judgment is starting already. Not the final judgment, but judgment is starting already. And so they ask this question. They know they're going to be judged. Every demon knows he's going to be judged. They have more sense than people, don't they? People don't think, well, I can do this and go, I'm not going to be judged. Ah, hell! <laughs> See, demons understand this very clearly. So they said, we know we're going to be judged. It seems like a little soon. So. Now, verse 30. A good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, meaning out of this, these two men, permit us to go into the herd of swine. And so he said, go. And when they went out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea, and they perished in the water, in the sea. Now, what we have is we have this next miracle of the exorcism and the demons going into the pigs and perishing into the sea. 
Now, there's more than meets the eye here, and you need to understand that. Most people read the scripture at a very surface level. But Jesus' miracles are more than miracles. Jesus' miracles are pointing to something. They're pointing to the fact that God's kingdom is arriving. And when God's kingdom arrives, the powers that hold the kingdoms of the world in place have to flee. He's defeating them. And so this, these miracles are pointing to Jesus defeating Rome. Uh, Jesus defeating the powers behind Rome, the satanic powers. These are what we call enacted parables or enacted uh, prophecies. This is a picture of what's going to happen to Rome. This is a picture of what's going to happen to Satan. Okay? So Rome has God's people enslaved. Rome has God's people captured. They control God's people. The powers behind Rome, the demons, have the nation, have the empire in their control. <clears throat> Rome controls people through the armies, through their military. Roman military units, the legions, you know, over in Mark's Gospel, he says, what's your name? And they say, our name is what? Legion. Remember that? The Roman legions wore on their breastplates emblems. And the emblem of the legion of soldiers that controlled this area the emblem on their breastplate was the pig. The boar. And this is an enacted parable or an enacted prophecy saying Rome is going to be defeated. And I'm taking control of it. Watch this. Hey, where do they go? They go into the pigs, representing the Roman Empire. Go into the water. Roman military, they go into the water and they drown. You know any other army that ever went to a sea and drowned? Oh, yeah, in Egypt, yeah. Pharaoh's army goes down to the sea, and guess what? Just like that God with one, just like that, just like that. Pharaoh's army is defeated. Israel is set free. Well, guess what? Israel's in bondage again. And this is an enacted prophecy that says Israel's going to be set free again. So, was it a real miracle? Yes. But you need to understand the miracle in prophetic terms as well as in actual terms. So what we have is God's kingdom is invading Roman territory and it's gaining victory. One person at a time. One inch at a time. One victory at a time. And that's what we do. When we go in to an area, this church right here, and every church that's planted in an area is taking over some of Satan's territory. And when a person gets saved, another victory. Somebody's been set free. And another victory. And somebody's been set free. And another victory. And somebody's been set free. Every salvation, every healing, every miracle points to that ultimate time when all God's people will be set free. So then, look what happens. It's really great because verse 33 says that those who kept them, meaning the, the swine, And they went away into the city and they told, every, told everything, everything that had happened, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to uh, meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their 
region. Now, why would you ask Jesus to depart from your region? Wouldn't you say, hey, we got two more demon-possessed people live over in that cemetery. We need some help over that. Because they're more concerned with their livelihood than they are with people. They've just lost a flock of flock, a herd, I guess, of pigs. <laughs> a legion is 6,000. We know from Mark's Gospel that, that there were yeah, a legion 6,000 and there were 2,000 pigs. We know that three demons went into each pig. So, 2,000 pigs, that's a lot of pigs. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And uh, they, this scared them. Hey, the exorcism scared them. The miracle frightened them. They were frightened before the miracle by the demon-possessed people. But when the exorcism occurred, they were scared even more. The disciples were frightened by the storm. But when Jesus calmed the storm, they were really frightened. So that's miracle number two. Now look at miracle number three. So we see Jesus' authority over this nature, we see Jesus' authority over demons, and we see Jesus' authority over sin. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. And so he got into the boat. They said, get out of here. He got in the boat and he went to the other side to his own city. That's Capernaum. And then behold, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now we know from Luke's Gospel, that's the one they put down through the roof. Remember that? Matthew doesn't give us all those details because he has a different purpose. Man was lying on his bed, paralytic. Jesus saw their faith. That's his friends. And he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now wait a second. So you don't read these things when you read them. Why is that? Why do you read over those verses? Why don't you just read the verse? Friends had faith. Faith for what? For healing. That's right. They brought this guy to get healed. Their faith was for healing. Jesus says, you're what? What's going on in here? They want the guy healed and Jesus forgives sins. He says he saw their faith and he said, I think they'd be scratching their heads by then, wouldn't you? What's going on here? Well, let me explain. Jewish rabbis at this time believed that all sickness was the result of sin. And in a sense it is, isn't it? If it were sin, we wouldn't get sick. So they believed that all sickness was the result of sin. So if Jesus is going to deal with the sickness, and maybe some there were people here in Capernaum, maybe he does this in, you know, in the area where there are a lot of rabbis teaching, he feels he has to deal with the healing first. He has to deal with the root, I mean the sin first. He has to deal with the root problem. If the root problem is sin, Healing is sickness as a result of sin. Let's deal with the root problem first. And so he says, your sin is forgiven you. No one scratches their head. That was just me scratching my head. Text doesn't say they scratched their head. Now then verse 3 says, and at once some of the scribes, ah, we do see that there are religious people here. The interpreters of the law, the scribes. They said within themselves, or could be among themselves, we don't know if it was out loud or they were just thinking this, this man blasphemes. This 
man blasphemes. Why do they say he blasphemes? Because we know from another gospel they say only what? God can forgive sins. Okay. So, he says he blasphemes. He, he forgives sins. Who does he think he is? And uh, many Christians will use this verse and other verses like this to say, see, this proves that Jesus is God. I don't think that's what Matthew's really trying to tell us. Because true that only God can forgive sins. But even in Israel, God didn't forgive sins directly. The high priest declared someone forgiven of their sins. You made the sacrifice, and guess what? He said, your sins are forgiven. So what they're saying is, who does he think he is? Only the high priest who represents God can say your sins be forgiven. And what is Jesus in essence saying? I speak for God. I am God's authorized high priest. These guys who are temple priests, they're a bunch of crooks. They work for Rome. They're the oppressors. They're holding you in bondage on behalf of Rome. Satan's using these guys. So, Jesus, speaking on behalf of God, says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Because they're not pure of heart. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, or that I have power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise. Did I skip a verse? I did skip a verse. You didn't tell me. You said, After 10 years, you still don't tell me. Still Why do you think evil in your heart? Verse 5. Because, which is easier? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or can I say to the paralytic, arise? Which is easier to do? Well, we can say them both, but what really, in reality, is easier to do? Easier to say, your sins. No one knows whether the sins are forgiven or not. That's an invisible thing. It would be harder to say, rise and walk. So, look what he says. But that you may know, now listen, this is the important phrase. That you may know that the Son of Man, not the priest, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. He then said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and he departed to his house. So, if sickness is caused by sin, Jesus forgives the man's sin. How do we know the man's sin is forgiven? Because Jesus now says, arise and walk. And therefore, if he can walk, what does that mean? His sin has been forgiven. So the miracle proves that the man's sin has been forgiven. It's evidence or proof that Jesus has that power. Jesus is God's authorized representative on earth over sin. <clears throat> now, notice where his authority is. He says it right there in verse 6. That you may know the Son of Man has power or authority over earth. 
over earth. When he's raised from the dead in Matthew 28, which we'll see later, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and... Wait, you didn't hear that. All authority has been given to me in where? Heaven and earth. Where does he have authority right now? Earth. Once he's raised, God puts him, exalts him to his right hand and gives him authority over the entire universe. And God, by the way, Jesus... As we'll see in verse 8. Well, let's just read verse 8 before I make this statement. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power or authority to what? Plural. Wait a second. Given such authority to who? Men. Plural. Because... When Jesus is raised from the dead, you know what he does? Before he's raised from the dead. Just in these teaching ministries. Just a few chapters after this. He calls the disciples together and he says, Who's ever sins you remit on earth? Who's ever sins you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven. Remember when he said that? Who's ever sins you bind on earth? God binds in heaven. You see, Jesus transfers this ability to forgive sins to the church, to his people. So when I go out and I preach the gospel, and I say, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I can assure them when they do that, you are forgiven. I have that power as a priest, and so do you. Because we're all kings and priests in God's kingdom. So we see that, uh, that this is going to be extended beyond Jesus and is going to end up in the church. And so where the church is, that's where the kingdom of God is. Where the church is, that's where the kingdom of God is. Where the church is, that's where the kingdom of God's power is manifested. It comes through the church. This is why the Catholic Church had such control over nations. Because they took verses like this seriously. And this is why evangelical churches have no power, have very little power in nations. Because we're so individualistic. Uh, we don't see the power that Jesus has given to the church. Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Just as the gates of hell couldn't prevail against Jesus, so they can't prevail against the church. The church is God's kingdom. The church is God's government. The church is God's empire. And one day, guess what? This kingdom will spread throughout the entire world. When Christ returns, guess what? The, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of his Christ. And this entire world will come under the reign of Christ, and they will submit. And the church has a prominent place in that kingdom, because he says, I saw the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, coming down and coming to this earth. And the kingdom of God spreads upon the earth. So what we see in these miracles is we see not only a miracle of Jesus' authority over nature, Jesus' authority over demons, and Jesus' authority over sin. He's basically saying, I'm setting people free. And this is a picture of the kingdoms of this world and Satan controlling them, being conquered, and people being set free ultimately for the kingdom of God. We'll pick up at verse 9 next week, and we'll look at the next three miracles of Jesus in this section.
Lord, we thank you that we can uh, look at a passage like this. We can, we can read it. We can understand it. We can see it in its fullness. We just take time to ask the right questions. We see this tremendous power that Jesus had. He broke the back of the Roman Empire. He broke the back of Satan. Yes, they, the world, kingdoms of this world still have limited power, but they have been defeated and they are going down. They're holding on for dear life as the church marches on. Help us to be the church. So the church be the church. Let us live in the power of the kingdom. Let us exercise our authority, calling people to come into Christ's kingdom and abandon the kingdoms of this world. In Christ's name we pray.